because we're going to screw that up and have to do it again. Also, if you screw up, no big deal. Right. Kind of getting that vibe. (laughs) (laughs) This is, yep, that's it. That's what's going on the beginning of the podcast. We're excited to announce two educators today on the podcast. Van is a sixth grade math teacher at Mandan Middle School, and Ryan is an 11th grade APDC U.S. history teacher at Mandan High School. Both have a combined 20 years of teaching experience and sit with five years of Canvas expertise. Van coaches high school football at Mandan, and Ryan is an officiate of high school and college football and a high school fast pitch softball coach. We've gotten to know them over the last few weeks and are thrilled They've accepted our invitation onto the podcast to discuss all things Mastery Paths on tonight's show. Van, Ryan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. As you guys know, we are interested in the why more than the how as it pertains to the power of Canvas. So you both have mentioned your use of Mastery Paths. Tell our listeners a little bit about what they are, and then give us a little bit of the why pitch for using them. Yeah, Mastery Paths are pretty new uh, to Canvas, uh, at least in the last couple of years uh, within our district. Um, and Master Paths really, uh, for us, are a way to give student choice for all kinds of different applications. Van uses his Master Paths for like a, a daily work in classroom, kind of a perfect practice type of a setup. Um, for my dual credit U.S. history class, I use Master Paths as a as a form of summative testing, which allows for some retesting opportunities along with built-in reteaching. Kind of the why for me, incorporating Mastery Paths in the beginning uh, was to move testing from a kind of the strategy of what do you know right now, which is what we've probably all grown up with uh, when we talk about uh, summative tests and really moving to an assessment, assessment for learning, giving students the opportunity to learn during the process of testing, giving them an opportunity to retest using the technology of Mastery Paths. It's just made my job as an instructor easier to do that. I've used it more in a daily assignment capacity. Uh, two, three years ago, Mastery Paths really first started out in beta. I was very dissatisfied with the kid that knows how to do long division, why does he have to do 20 of them? Yes. So I started, I, I didn't get it. And a lot of behaviors, a lot of unsatisfied with what was going on in my class. And what I did is I shortened up all my assignments to five or six problems and then built in these academic supports, these interventions, enrichments into the mastery paths to really give kids the opportunity to get the feedback they need instantaneously. Not even after they do five problems. After they do one problem, what did they do wrong? How can we fix it before they go on to the next problem? I have to interject because I've got to say that you're the math teacher I needed to have. (laughs) <laughs> Truthfully, yeah. because right. and I, I will I will say this. I, I teach eighth grade. I have an eighth grade class this year. I teach tech, uh, some technology stuff with them. I always am interested to hear if, you know, a math class has changed compared to what I remember. Right. I'm like, hey, Hyatt. Hey, Edwin, tell me, you know, what was your homework last night for algebra? They're still saying it. Oh, man, we had to do, you know, two through 48 even. And I'm like, <laughs> right. What? 
again, still, I was doing that in the 80s. Come on. I would have been much better in math class, frankly, if I was able to, to do less and just prove it. Yeah, and how to fix it right away. And you don't have to wait till the end of the assignment. You don't have to wait till you did 15 of them wrong and form <laughs> those bad habits to all of a sudden now I have to fix it. It's, uh, it's really changed. I feel like that stigma of, of math with parents and my students has started to shift. Um, there isn't that negative stigma towards math anymore which is which is really nice a full disclosure here you guys are from north dakota correct so things might be done a little differently up there than indiana but mastery paths to me and the people i talk to are so daunting as an educator even as a trainer who tried to know all the little ins and outs of the platform that canvas offers and some of the stuff that's available to us as teachers how do you recommend or where do you recommend everyone start when considering the mastery path tool i really think think that when you are when you think that this is the thing for you you have to be kind of okay with the first few not going very well when Ryan and I first started doing these we both were baseball players played baseball together in high school I think we were batting about we would have been sent down to A or cut hold on I know some listeners right now that are in my district that are just eating the baseball talk up so you can continue with those analogies <laughs> to the rest of the podcast if you'd like okay we struck out the first couple times <laughs> there we go in the in some of the professional developments that Ryan and I have done um, the last few years our district has been hard on mastery paths because they see the power in them we've been telling teachers they're like we love this where do we get started my and what I always tell them is create good content create good quizzes and then really be intentional and thorough about what are the academic supports that I would give a kid with this assignment or this quiz, and then how can I put that into Canvas? I, um, the actual building of the mastery path isn't overly complicated, isn't overly time consuming. It's the building of good content and good academic supports. What Eddie is sort of hinting at is just this, the whole mentality of when are we as educators, when do we get to that point where we're willing to, you know, take the leap? Uh, right. And this has been something we've talked about before on on other episodes. Eddie's talking about how daunting mastery paths are for him. I would be in the same same group. I see a tool within Canvas. I I know that it's valuable. It wouldn't be there if it wasn't. And I hear people talk about it like you guys are talking about how powerful it is. I think a lot of our listeners just need to have need to hear this conversation from two experienced teachers with it, nudge into it because as you said, it's not really about conquering the building of mastery paths. It's about having good good content to put into that mastery path. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I, I, I think a lot of us already have that good content in Canvas. If maybe we just restructure it a little bit, uh, maybe put it as a quiz instead of an assignment or an assignment instead of a page, we already have that content in. When you're talking about the dauntingness of Mastery Paths, I think that when you dive in for the first time, it's really great if you can dive in with somebody else in your same content area, whether it's a PLC group or somebody on a team or something like that, to kind of divide and conquer the work. I know one of the things that Van introduced into my canvas life was the idea of a sandbox class a place to kind of play around and build content and one of my uh, co-teachers guy that teaches government with me we sat down and, and we built the first master path for the high school together 
uh, in that sandbox class. So he would work on one one of the tests and I would work on the other. And we were able to create content uh, a little bit faster that way. And it was also good to just be able to bounce ideas off of somebody else uh, as you're in the in this process. Ryan brings up a great point on just finding members of a team <laughs> that can help you create content. I think it's so important to surround yourself with people that are kind of teaching similar things to you to create that content together. It just makes life so much easier, especially when you're starting from scratch. The willingness for you guys to to sit down and I think what we've been doing for years and years and years in public education is having these workshops, these sit downs with your teams. And they were often, you know, curriculum maps. We sit down for ages and ages and hours upon hours and upon hours designing our curriculum for our courses. I don't I don't know that I see those curriculum mapping meetings happening right there where we're like, we're going to build right here in Canvas. Like why, why not just sort of cut out the middle step? Yeah, it it can be as daunting as you want it to be. But when you take it and I think when we took it and really broke it down piece by piece and really started to figure out how all the pieces fit, oh, we want to make a mastery path? Okay, let's sit down and in half an hour, 45 minutes, we busted a whole mastery path out, which for me is a lesson for Ryan is an assessment. So those first ones took a little bit longer because we didn't know how all the pieces fit. Well, now we have an idea of how all those pieces fit and it, it's very liberating for us and my, or for me and my teaching on how, how well that works. It's wor- it's definitely worth the time. So you mentioned earlier, and you used a word here that I think is really important. You you said you were being intentional, uh, and we talk about instructional design being so intentional and at the same time complex. Uh, how has your mindset changed as educators, both of you guys, looking at something like Mastery Paths as a way to differentiate and then also personalize the learning? Uh, I think it kind of goes back to what I said before about uh, I really want that kid to get what they need right now. I don't want them to wait for the next day to correct the worksheet. I don't want them to wait uh, until the end of their 15 problems to hit submit and then see how they did. Um, It's very intentional that way. And even just as designing my academic supports, I take a look at an individual question, where's a kid gonna trip up on this? Well, they're sixth graders, so most of the time, yeah, I have no idea. But every now and then I can have a guess on where they're gonna trip up and design those academic supports to fit that kid or that mistake that a, a kid will commonly make and make it for them. And what, what that's done for my mindset is just as an educator is I'm always thinking about the kid first. I, when I'm designing a lesson, it, the kid comes first before the, before the instruction, before anything else, and then I design everything around that kid. Who, Marcus, hold on. Stop yes. the tape. Do, we yep. need to just, can we just cut that and end the episode here? Thanks, thanks for like, being here, guys. Hey, uh, let's start with the student. Can we just start with the end user on all of this and just stop the nonsense that is happening in education? Keep it going, Van. Sorry, I just had to. I got all. I got all goosebumps uh, here in my in my closet. <laughs> oh boy, put that on. That's got to stay. That, that's no, staying. That is edited out. Uh, for the record, he said, "I got the goosebumpy in the closet." <laughs> is what he said. Oh boy. I don't know if I can top that, so I just might pass the torch. Not as eloquent as what Van said, but I think about 
instructional design for how like I designed assessments before I use mastery paths. I always had some gotcha questions. You know, it's an it's an AP dual credit US history class, so it's their tests are usually long and complex. Since I've been using mastery paths, um, it's really made me redefine what a grade is in class. It's not just a not just a percentage, it's not just a letter grade. It's really about the learning that happens, the learning that happens with kids even even during a test, when they get a chance to get a retry, has, has been a really powerful, powerful piece for me that has really made me look at kind of what, what is a grade in a class. Today, I think I define that differently than I did uh, three years ago. This sounds like an excellent time to, to kind of recharge your batteries and come back with not only some great questions on integrating Canvas for some people that have been in Canvas for a long time, but also the Canvas backpack and who they're following on social media. So stay tuned to the Canvas Casters podcast. We'll be right back. InstructureCon 2020 is sure to be an amazing opportunity for fun and learning. First of all, this year's conference is in Nashville. Let's just come out and say it, that if you can have a blast in Nashville, then, well, come find the Canvas Casters. Not only will you get to continue down the road towards becoming a Canvas Jedi by attending amazing sessions by some of the foremost Canvas Jedi in the galaxy, but there's more. The Canvas Casters will be there, providing live content throughout the conference, and don't forget to register for the Unconference on Friday, July 31st. This year's Unconference will be hosted by the Canvas Princess herself, Kona Jones, and a new addition to this year's event, our very own Marcus Painter, co-hosting because every Princess Leia needs her Chewbacca. I'm still not okay with you writing that line. I'm just so we're clear. I'm not cool with it. I think that it's awesome. I can't. That, did you practice that? No, like, I am very good. <laughs> I've never heard a... that noise come out of your mouth. I've known you for how many years, and that noise has never come out of your mouth. Well, you've never been at Disney World with me. I throw Wookie all the time. I walk into the Animal Kingdom and <laughs> nailed it. Our uh, curriculum director, that's his text message uh, ring. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and he never has his phone on vibe. So it's always like middle of a big meeting and then Chewbacca. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. And we're back. No, I don't want to say that. No, okay. that's terrible. And we're back. I was like Johnny Carson. Now, we talk on the show a lot about the amount of experience within Canvas and how, how important that is. And you guys have what I would call, you're not OGs, okay? Let's be, let's be real. Um, an OG is a guy like me uh, who can rhyme on accident like I just did there. But also, <laughs> an OG is a person, you know, who's been in, been in Canvas for, you know, seven, eight, nine years. Um, but with five years of experience with Canvas, that's legit. That's a legitimate amount of time to be using Canvas in your classrooms. Can you guys, can either of you guys think back to the strange parallel universe before Canvas in your classroom? I had a lot of paper cuts. Right. It was much more dangerous. Yes. Honestly, like think back to that and think back to what you were doing in class, what types of things that you were sort of assigning for homework. How have those concepts changed for you having canvas 
sort of as this really powerful platform for you and your your students? Well, I remember a really bad, poorly made website that was for my class. Um, that's for sure. That was mm-hmm. that was pretty awful. And uh, you know, you I was going to the Scantron machine all the time, lying at the Scantron machine over finals tests. And then you you would make a test, and then you would you wouldn't have the right Scantron. So you make a 50-question test, and there's only 40 question Scantrons left or something stupid like that. Or did you ever have multiple keys? You know, oh, like yes. you, you do the test, and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm really awesome at this, so I'm going to make two different tests with two different keys, and then you'd like run them. You'd try to run it with the wrong key, and it would sound like a war zone. You know what I'm talking about? Like I had the old Scantron where it ran through, and it like marked it. It would be like... <laughs> and everybody else in the room, all the other teachers at, at lunch were like, oh, man, Painter. They can hear how poorly kids were doing. Yeah, or the first kid. It was always the first kid for me that would just have everything wrong because I put the wrong side in or something like that. And just like, I just spent lots of pointless time doing really like not good teaching tasks, writing my schedule on the board every week and erasing it. And then we'd have a snow day and you'd have to like erase the whole board again when you could just like drag and drop. And it's pretty, it's pretty simple, but it just, it was just a lot of time. You know, you stand, stand over the printer and you're making copies and then you realize you spell the word wrong or you have, you know, three question fours and you got to go back down and reprint them all again. And just those little simple things in the classroom really actually freed up time to be a teacher and like treat kids as humans. You're saving time, finding ways to, to accomplish the tasks. My experience has been the same. Like there's the idea that these things that we were so dependent upon have transformed and now in this platform, we have the ability to do those old things in different and more enriching and better uh, approaches to learning. And that's the, that's the kicker is teachers are more efficient. Students are learning more efficiently. I think it's one of the reasons why we're so passionate about doing what we're doing, right? It's we are getting time back. And that was something that I always tried to stress with teachers that felt overwhelmed in trying something new. It's that I'm giving you time back. Essentially, at the end of this, I know it's going to be a lot of upfront work to get to a point where you're very happy and satisfied with what your online learning looks like or what your virtual environment looks like. But that upfront work pays off in the long run because you are going to get time back. I find a way to have Canvas do the stuff that takes up so much of my time. And that's people are like, oh, that's a really good way to think of it. It's it's your TA, it's your teacher's assistant, whatever you want it to do. There's probably a way Canvas can do it. And so uh, it's really it's like Ryan said, it's saved a lot of time. Like you guys have said, it's saved a lot of time where I can be building relationships with my kids. Then yeah, before before Canvas, students would turn in work, and I was kind of notorious for losing work that students <laughs> would turn in especially the kid that turns it in late or something like that. I don't have to worry about that anymore. If, you know, I don't do a ton of grading because I let Canvas do most of it, but, you know, a term paper or something like that, I just have my computer and I can grade it on there. And before it was taking it home and, um, you know, spilling coffee on it and just, you just misplace stuff. Uh, but but it's all it's all digital. It's all in Canvas, ready to go uh, when I need to to grade it, when I have time to grade it, those kinds of things. 
What are some challenges? You guys have a great deal of Canvas experience, but obviously you've been in it for five years. What are some things that you've noticed either with yourself or with fellow teachers that you've kind of faced from from rollout day one uh, to year one to today? The biggest thing that I have seen is teachers viewed as another thing to do. Um, what What is this other thing? And then you have that population of teachers that uh, I'll just wait it out. I'll, I'll just wait out Canvas and it will go away at some point because I think our profession has kind of gone through that where, oh, a new trend comes up, wait five years and it'll be gone. And our district's invested a lot of money into Canvas. Um, it's not going away. Like you can, <laughs> it's there for a while. So you might as well start uh, investing some time into it. And I think people, I know I struggle with this a lot um, when people come up and talk to me about Canvas is I do a lot of stuff in Canvas. Well, I have five years of, of really in-depth experience. I do a lot of different things. Those people think that in order to be successful with Canvas, they have to do all of those things. No, find something that's going to save you some time, get you to buy into this platform and go from there. What you're describing, I think, is great advice where it's like, listen, you know, this guy is great in Canvas. He does all the things. Uh, if there's a, a teacher who's reluctant or a teacher who is not as tech savvy, they don't need to be trying to meet that expectation. Find something that works for your students in your setting and put effort into like making that really, really great. And so, you know, I've seen teachers where, you know, they don't use quizzes ever, but they use discussions all the time, right? Because that's something that really coincides with the content of their class and the dynamics of the students and so forth. So again, really great advice on if you're using Canvas in your building or district, you don't have to do everything at once. And I, I try to tell some teachers in my building about, hey, where should I start? And I'm like, well, what's taking up a lot of your time? Let's let's start let's start there with what's taking up a lot of your time, and we'll we'll try to find a way to put it onto Canvas. There isn't much Canvas can't do, so if a teacher is willing to step out of their comfort zone a little bit, we usually can save them some time somewhere. But a lot of teachers don't have an opportunity to have those discussions with someone that is familiar with Canvas, and that to me is kind of sad. Like I wish we could be. <laughs> everywhere at one time having those discussions with teachers and individual discussions because what works in my room doesn't work across the hallway. So obviously we we now know how to improperly implement an LMS. <laughs> what do you guys think is the recipe for success in rollout and growth within Canvas over time? So our, our school district rolled out, rolled out Canvas um, to four different levels in four different years. So we started with the high school uh, then year two, we were at the middle school, year three uh, at the upper elementary, and then year four, which is this year, um, with like the full district rollout, it's uh, K through two. And I think we've gotten better as a district over time uh, because of the uh, some of the some of the struggles uh, year one at the high school in particular. Um, and and really, when you look at uh, kind of the takeaway for me, uh, it was a lot about building consistency uh, with what appears to students on the sidebar. Uh, because there, there are so many options in Canvas, like you, you talked about assess or you talked about assignments and uh, pages and announcements and modules and all that stuff on the on the left side that 
a lot of the teachers the first year of the full school rollout uh, at the high school just had everything open on the left-hand side. And one teacher, first period, would have students go to assignments. And then second period, they did everything just in announcements. And then third period, they did everything in all of the different, in, in you know, the quizzes were in quizzes and assignments were in assignments. And so what we've just talked about as our district is just start in modules and make everything easy. Hide everything else on the left-hand side for us and just do modules. And it's been amazing how much that has helped uh, when that's been more of a more of a focus. And so I think that's probably the biggest change that's happened throughout our rollout as far as getting students comfortable with Canvas. Right. It's all about consistency for the learner, right? If we're going to get serious, Van, you talked about that earlier. If we're going to get serious about you know, designing content and making it consistent for the learner. That's, I don't know how many times I've had to say that over the last four years is that, yeah, can we let one teacher use another LMS and can we let another teacher use Canvas? Absolutely. We could do that. But why would we? Because it doesn't provide a consistent learning experience for everyone. And you can micromanage that down to what Ryan just said, which was, you know, we had teachers using this specific part and then another teacher using this specific part. And it was different for the learner. If I'm a kid that has six blocks a day or eight blocks a day or four blocks a day, I'm still confused. <laughs> um, you know, Mrs. Jones likes me to do this, but Mr. Stanley likes me to do that. And it's, it's very inconsistent for the learner. We are confusing them without even giving them a chance. That was one of the first like uh, 10 commandments that Ryan and I talked about was, hey, we have to make sure we're using the modules, and that's trial and error. Well, that was huge for us. I think our district has done a very good job of rolling this out. We've learned from our bumps. Um, I think one of the one of the things that I wish we would have done a little bit better job right away was really focus on the the ways that Canvas can save you time. Um, and form and and sell that as you're saving time. What what could you do with that time now? Hey, sweet, we can have better uh, support, academic supports for those kids that are struggling. You have the ability to work with those kids who, before the enrichment kids, are always been a struggle to get to because you're so focused on those kids that haven't got it yet. And now, hey, with that time that I've saved, I can focus on those enrichment kids. Um, I can just build common relate or better relationships with with my students because of some of the time we saved. Um, I think at the beginning, we kind of looked at some of the flashier things of Canvas, and we didn't focus on the meat and potatoes. I'm starting exactly the way you guys are are speaking, which is how can this thing I'm going to teach you right now make your life easier as the teacher. And then what I love is what you guys did is you taking that next step. It's not just save you time. That's still great, but save you time. And then now what can you do with that saved time? We always like to get into our sort of a, a, a go-to question, which is, of course, the Canvas backpack. So before we go, we need to hear from both of you guys. What's in your Canvas backpack? In mine, I would say this is the thing that I always... I always do, um, no matter what, what's going on, is I create a sandbox class. And uh, Ryan talked about those quickly before. It's just a, a self-created class in Canvas, not tied to anything um, self-enrolled, I should say. And 
It's just where I play, um, my PLC plays with it. Um, we, we create things, we see if they work in there. Um, that has saved a lot of time. That has saved a lot of uh, mis teacher mistakes that would affect students' uh, interaction with Canvas. So that we, we call it a sandbox class, um, but that would be something that is uh, absolutely in my backpack. That's what we call it uh, in my district, and, and I I do the same exact thing for the same exact reasons. You can go there, you can do the experimentation, the play, the discovery without breaking anything. And oftentimes teachers are worried about breaking stuff. So in this case, you do it there. And guess what? If if it doesn't work, no harm. Yeah, and for me, um, my, my backpack, uh, I definitely... Um, have spent just a ton of time talking to fellow teachers at the high school about their use of modules and just the organizational piece. Uh, we've got kids that, that hit, you know, six, seven, eight different teachers a day and just being organized for how to, how to handle Canvas. Um, it just helps the kids a lot, but it also helps, uh, it helps me when I'm trying to help teachers uh, and it, it hopefully should help teachers to just start at one place um, have some consistency across the across the building and help out our kids. Who are you guys following on social media? Who are those people out there that you'd not end the episode without kind of shouting out or at least giving some love to that have helped you guys along your along your journey? Well, I've been the last uh, the last year um, been following Don Wetrick with Pure Genius. I've uh, been following him quite a bit after incorporating some Genius Hour work into my classroom. And then I got an opportunity to go to ISTE 2019, and so just a whole bunch of speakers there, just talking about a lot of different things, but but really just tech integration and just making good relationships with kids. So somebody like Bethany Petty, who was another social studies teacher, just a couple of those that I really uh, really enjoy seeing what they do with students. I use Twitter more for like a positive motivational pickup uh, so I like Dr. Uh, Brad Johnson um, he has a lot of stuff that hey this is the way education should should look uh, it, I, I love when I get to see a tweet from him and then uh, I, a very popular author John Gordon um, his energy bus stuff has really changed how I look at interactions with kids my athletes and even my coworkers, uh, which can be sometimes the hardest people to work with uh, to deal with so if my, I always tell people if my job was only about kids I would have the best job in the world John Gordon I, I really like his his energy bus stuff we can't thank you enough I know I speak for Marcus uh, when I say this has been an absolute fantastic episode Van Ryan you guys are awesome thank you so much for being being on the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we, we really appreciate uh, being able to share our story with you guys. And remember, we don't work for Canvas. Canvas, Canvas works, works for, for us. us. So here's a question, Ryan. Have you have you officiated Vans football games? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh boy. Ooh, this sounds this sounds a little shady. We need to get you guys back on the podcast. <laughs> We've had some good ones. We've had some good ones. <laughs> we were roommates in college too. Oh wow, nice. <laughs> yeah. So we we we've had some moments on the field, but I. Uh,
um, probably where the my police, probably my favorite where the police one. called at any any time. Probably my favorite one is a good buddy of mine who I officiate with all the time. Van coaches either it's been JV but freshman football. Okay. And uh, my buddy threw a flag for. I mean, it was the right call, but it's not a call you it hear wasn't every the day. Right call. And <laughs> That's BS. I was, I was the white hat, and he, my buddy, was across the field from Van, and so he came and he reported what he had to me, and I looked at him and I said, "You just wanted me to tell Van, didn't you?" <laughs> <laughs> and he so, said, "Yep, go have fun." And he turned around away. <laughs> so it was, we 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 face a lot of teams that run jet motion. And we tell our defense, hey, let people know that he's coming. So yell jet. Well, it's simulating the snap count. We know that. But um, so I go out there. And this is probably the hottest I've ever been at official. I usually am off. I'm not hard on officials. But I'm like, we're protecting our players. How do we know he's not going to get blocked? Like, that's a, that's a blindside block. And I'm just throwing out everything. And then he said, well, your nose guard is yelling it. So as I'm walking away from him, and I, I probably could have got the penalty on this one. Um, as I'm walking away from him, I say, okay, nose, everyone else yell it even louder. Nose guard, you don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Ryan said after the he's like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's about, about what I expected. Awesome. Yep. 